the UN wasn't created to bring about heaven on earth. It was to prevent hell on earth and mm-hmm. to save us from hell. And we know what that hell looked like. We saw it with the Holocaust, we saw it with the Second World War. We see it in conflicts around the world. So it's imperfect and it can't bring about perfection and it can't bring about heaven, but it can try its best to prevent hell or to mitigate the worst aspects of, of hell on earth. And I think that's noble despite all the flaws. That was Fergal Mython, Ireland's ambassador to the United Nations. And I'm John Lee. And I'm Martin Nutty. And welcome to another episode of Irish Stew, the podcast for the global Irish nation. This episode of Irish Stew is sponsored by the Irish Heritage Tree Program. Celebrate your Irish roots by planting native trees for family and friends in the beautiful Golden Vale of Ireland. Go to irishheritagetree.com and use the exclusive discount code today. It's irishstew10 for 10% off. That code again is irishstew and the numeral 10. Keep the heritage of Ireland green and growing by going to irishheritagetree.com. Hi, everybody. This is Martin Nutty with the Irish Stew Podcast, and I want to welcome you all to another Global Irish Conversation here in our studio with John Lee. Hey, John. Hey, Martin. And you you mentioned Global Irish Conversation. Uh, Well, there aren't too many people with a more global view of Ireland than its diplomatic corps. And the ambassador to the UN has to be the most global of all diplomatic postings. And before our next guest became the permanent representative of Ireland to the United Nations, he worked in Irish-British affairs, including Brexit, Irish-Canadian and Irish-Latin American and Caribbean affairs. He was on the European Community Monitoring Mission to the former Yugoslavia. He twice served in the permanent representation of Ireland to the European Union in Brussels. And I'm just scratching the surface there. So Mm -hmm. let's see what else we can draw out as we welcome uh, Ambassador Fergal Mython to Irish Stew. Thanks very good, John. Thanks very good, Martin. Uh, Delighted to be here and, and happy to talk about our work and my own role and my own growing up and how I ended up where I ended up today. Well, let's just, we, we're going to definitely find out about your kind of your life story here, uh, Fergal, in a moment. Let's start off with a, a scene setter, a bit of a quote on uh, diplomacy. I found an awful lot of quotes on diplomacy. They range from the serious to the sardonic, but let's go mm-hmm. somewhere in the middle here. Uh, a quote from John F. Kennedy. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. Does that resonate with you? Yes, it's a pretty good line. Um, in in my entire career, and that goes back to 1990 when I joined the Irish Department of Foreign Affairs uh, back then, the key, the key tool we have is engagement, building relationships and negotiations. And I would have been involved in a lot of negotiations in relation to the Northern Ireland peace process, negotiations in the European Union context representing Ireland at the EU level, and here in the United Nations where engagement and negotiation and discussion is, is what we do. And for me, why I particularly like and enjoy the work at the UN is we have 193 countries, 193 member states, plus some observers. And we spend, you know, each and every day negotiating, 
finding compromises, working through disagreements. And it's it's really, really impactful. Uh, it doesn't always succeed. We don't always close that gap, but we keep on trying. And I think that's far, far preferable to to the alternative, which we see you know, around the world and we have seen around the world, conflict, war, disagreement, tensions. So yeah, it's. I think John F. Kennedy was spot on the money. It's really important to negotiate. So I'm going to... With that introduction, we at Irish do would certainly align with that. Um, I want to roll the clock back a bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me about growing up in Ireland. Where was it? How was it? Yeah, a, a pretty standard story, I have to say. I was born in Dublin in 1968, so you can do the maths. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, an Ireland that was really on the cusp of huge change. I was born in Dublin, but not of Dublin. Both my parents were from rural Ireland, father from rural Wexford, mother from rural Longford. Not much work in the 30s and 40s and 50s in in rural Ireland. They moved like so many to the city. Uh, In fact, most of my aunties and uncles moved to England, but my mother and father moved to Dublin, met there in, I think, a a Gaelic league, Cayley, or dance, and uh, had four children growing up in a housing estate in Whitehall, which is on the north side of Dublin, near the airport, near Santry. Uh, we're able to afford and buy a house. Uh, uh, my father worked in a bakery, working manual work, to be honest. Uh, my, you know, my mother stayed at home. So it was a very typical uh, growing up in Ireland, in, in an, a north side suburb. We weren't very wealthy, but then nobody, no, no, no one else was either. So it didn't really matter. We didn't feel um, that we lacked for anything educated locally in the local national school and then in the local secondary school, which was St. Aidan's, uh, well known for for educating both Bertie Hearn, uh, a future Taoiseach, and also Liam Brady, uh, a player who, who graced uh, graced uh, soccer pitches all over the world and represented Ireland. They're probably the two most famous. I don't come anywhere near that, but <laughs> it was uh, we were proud of both of them uh, in terms of, of, of who came out of the school. But it was, it was a Christian world school. I was extremely happy there. And a very, very normal childhood growing up. And I think, you know, if I look back to a key moment in Ireland's development, it was 1968, the year I was born. Donna O'Malley, Minister for Education, brought through free secondary level education for everyone uh, without exception. I think he didn't tell our Department of Finance about that. He just went and got <laughs> government approval. And really, for Ireland, the rest is history, both personally, but also, you know, economically, socially. It was a really decisive moment. So, as I say, born on that cusp. Yeah, well, you know, we had that conversation or uh, a similar conversation with one of your former colleagues, Dan Mulhall, about that particular moment in time when second-level education became universally available in Ireland. And I would like point to that personally as really shifting things in dramatic ways in Ireland, especially as a fellow Northsider. Many people from my side of the city and your side of the city, let's say their opportunities were more limited compared to our more prosperous Southsider (laughs) brethren. I'm not going to get into the (laughs) North-South debate. But no, look, look, my father left school at 12, my mother at 14. That's not, I'm not saying uh, that's any great thing or an unusual thing. That was the case for most Irish people, uh, probably your own parents too, Martin. So we know what that what that moment meant in terms of opening up opportunities. And then later on, a future government uh, brought in broadly free third-level education as well. So these were key moments. And when you look at Ireland with, a, with a, an educated workforce, 
uh, comfortable in its own skin in so many ways, I think that was a key moment. So I always think of uh, Donna O'Malley with great fondness and as a real Irish patriot, to be honest. Uh, Fergal, I'm struck by the fact that uh, you've negotiated some of the most thorny issues in the world, but you do not want to touch North Dublin versus South Dublin. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, absolutely. No, we, we, we leave that there. So speaking of, of education, Fergal, uh, I know you went to Trinity and you mm-hmm. went to UCD. You did history and English in Trinity and business studies in UCD. How does that all fall into what's is now more than 30 years in the Department of Foreign Affairs. Was that on your radar when you went into college or were you like the rest of us still kind of futzing around figuring out what we're going to do? Absolutely. Like the rest of us, I had no great plan, no great vision. Uh, of all the things I studied in, in, in college, history was the one that really grabbed me. Uh, I just liked the, the rigor and the thoroughness and, the, you know, being pushed by, 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 academics uh to really go to the sources so no no bs no winging it no opinions what are the facts what are the sources why are you saying that and that's what really struck me and that's that's lessons i've learned that i've carried with me throughout my entire career that rigor um but i had no great plan uh i was in college 85 to 90 so again not a great time economically we had a you know public jobs embargo. We had really difficult years, 87 to 90. Uh, I came out in 1990 and many of my college mates, you know, took the Ryanair flight to England, some to America, elsewhere. It wasn't a great time. But in 1990, uh, the, the, the Irish government started recruiting again. And my mother saw an advertisement for what was called third secretary, which is a kind of recruitment grade for the diplomatic service. And being the good Irish mammy, she said, apply for that. And I did. <laughs> and I got it. I, I, To be honest, I've recruited so many really great young people since then who have masters and internships and experience. I had none of that. So the department took a bit of a punt. Uh, uh, and I'm very glad they did so because it's, it's been a great career. But I, I put it down to, to the Irish mammy who said, go off here. There's an advertisement. See if, that's, if that will, will, um, will work out for you. And it did. And it has. And, and when did you start feeling like that you had made the right step? This was the world you should be in. Very early on, actually. Um, I My first assignment was on what was called our Anglo-Irish division, which was dealing with the peace process in Northern Ireland. But back in 19, there wasn't a peace process. Or it was just the very, very early roots of that process. And I was assigned to the International Fund for Ireland which was a fund established uh, in the early, in the late 80s with the help of the US government. Uh, Tip O'Neill, Ronald Reagan was a big supporter. And basically it was spending small amounts of money with community groups in Northern Ireland to try and build connections, break down barriers. And I just met some extraordinary people doing extraordinary work from right across the, the, the community in Northern Ireland, 1990, 1992, still a dangerous time. Uh, I got to work with Northern Ireland officials, British officials, and from that, I just, you know, it won, it kind of, it touched with, with the kind of history I had studied in, in, in Trinity uh, and my just, my just interest in, in, in Irish history and, and Irish futures, I suppose. So from then on, yeah, I really, really, I felt this is, this is something I'd like to be involved in. Um, so yeah, it was, it was an early, it was an early marriage, I have to say. I really liked it. Was there anything in your education, your, your, your history major, as you look back where you, you know, do you remember diplomatic lessons from the past? Yeah, I think um, 
certainly in my third year in college, I did uh, a really good course with David Fitzpatrick on on the revolution and civil war in Ireland. And it was just, you know, a really in-depth course, as I say, going back to the sources, really investigating kind of people's motivations, the motivations of leaders or people in leadership positions, the mistakes made, the, 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 the choices taken, the paths taken or not taken. And I think that really stood with me as I worked through various phases of the peace process, you know, and I worked at various levels over the last 30 years. And just the importance of seizing a moment, not letting it dissipate, not letting it drift away, just really, really working to build relationships as well. You know, I look at the relationships that were built from 1990 onwards in Northern Ireland with the help of the Irish government, the British government, the US involvement. And I just think, God, imagine imagine there have been the similar relations built, the similar work done in 1916 to 23. Maybe Ireland could have been, a, maybe our history could have been different. Maybe we could have avoided civil war. Maybe, uh, you know, they're big ifs, they're big question marks. Uh, but certainly I think we need to learn the lessons of the past. And that's what I've tried to do in, in my work. Well, at this stage, we've got you in Ireland. We've got you crossing the border to Northern Ireland. We have you connected with the UK, but we haven't gotten you too far away from home yet. I understand perhaps your first uh, your first posting was in Rome. Uh, first, it was. Yeah. It was, yeah. So I, I was sent to Rome to work in our embassy uh, to Italy, not to the Holy See, to Italy. And it was a basic standard starting job in our in our foreign service, which is consular work looking after people who get into difficulty and running the embassy administration. And none of it is very, very sexy work, but it's actually very important work. And I remember my, my ambassador, Pat O'Connor, saying to me, Fergal, this isn't, you know, it's it's not UN, it's not high diplomacy, but what you learn here, both in administration terms and also in looking after people in real difficulty who need you at this moment, is that those lessons will stand to you throughout your entire career, and really, well, really did I have to say? And um, for me, I, I, you know, I dealt with some really difficult cases: people who'd lost young, young, young children in, in in Italy, people who lost loved ones who died of a heart attack, people who got into real difficulty and scrapes in prison, and just being able to help them uh, get through that difficult moment. Uh, it just helped me to, I suppose, learn to deal with people in those kinds of difficulties and to empathize and to assist and, and not to judge. You know, some people, sometimes, you know, we all do silly things when we're abroad, uh, not to judge, just to help and to assist. And, um, and I must say, you know, I didn't know at the time, but it, it, when I was on the Northern Ireland job, Years afterwards, I met a lot of families who lost loved ones during the troubles, during the conflict, and just being able to empathize the, the skills I learned and the experience I learned in Rome helped me in those situations later on. See, when um, John uh, asked you earlier about your the point where you realized you'd found a professional home, I thought you were going to tell us about that first uh, cup of espresso in Rome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I realized my answer to your question about Italy and Rome was was very serious, but actually it was a wonderful <laughs> place to spend uh, four years. I had a nice apartment near the Colosseum. I had a little Vespa, and it's it's a wonderful city. And I, I brought um, our family back there. Myself and wife went back to Italy with our children, and um, they were bowled over by it too. So yeah, it, it it was it was a lot of fun, and I met an awful lot of people from all over the world and Italians too. And it was, uh, yeah. When I go back there, it still makes me still makes me smile. So it wasn't all work. I have to be have to be honest there, Martin. So speaking about family, uh, Fergal, um, 
You have four children, as I understand it. Yeah. Talk to me about the challenges of multiple overseas postings in different places and trying to kind of, you know, keep things healthy on the home front. Yeah, it, it, it can be challenging. Um, my wife is also a diplomat, so she understands, you know, the, the requirements and the stresses and strains. And so the two of us, you know, we, we not sure we set out to have four children, but but that's <laughs> that's what that's what we ended up with, and uh, very 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 happy. But you know, moving moving one child can be difficult. Moving four can be difficult because they're all at different stages of development, different stages of you know deep friendships uh, back home, different stages of, of schooling. Um, so we we've only done two postings with them. We were in in Brussels um, twice, uh, but then I w- uh, we were at home for nine years from 2013 to 2022, which is a long stint, and it just just the way the the career panned out. But it actually meant that the children were in Ireland for nine years, and that wasn't necessarily a bad thing because they really developed a sense of who they who they are and where they're from. You know, they played Gaelic games in 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 in. Kilbarrick with neighbour Oak, they would go cycling for a swim at Port Marnock. So they, they had a really good sense of who they are. And I think that's not a bad thing. So when we moved here with three of the four, the, the eldest has just gone to college uh, in Ireland. Our three daughters then are here with us. I think they had that strong foundation when they came here. They, they had a good sense of who they are when they're coming here. But it's still it's still a challenge. And I think all my colleagues in the department, I think all diplomats would find this challenging. And that, you know, while one child might be delighted to head to New York, another might not be, uh, while one child might be delighted to head to Jakarta or Rome or, or wherever, you know, others in the family may find it tough going. And it all depends. Do they settle in? Do they make friends easily or quickly? And all of that. Um, our, our girls are doing really, really well. Uh, but that's not to say there aren't difficult days or days when they're really missing home. Uh, what we've noticed compared to when I went to Rome back in the nineties, you know, back in the nineties there was there was you know no smartphones. I think we got a fax a day telling us the news. There wasn't even satellite TV or radio, uh, and so you just got on with it. And you weren't flying home every week. Uh, you weren't connecting with friends in that way. Now they can, and they're on the phone daily, and and you know Snapchat and and FaceTime, and that's really great in some ways. But it can hold hold you back from really diving into where you are now too. So there's there's pros and cons to how connected we are today compared to Fido Fido. Tell us a little bit about your about you. Martin and I were talking beforehand. We're interested in Canada. We've we've touched a little bit on Irish Canadian topics there, but we haven't done enough. And we're interested to see your relationships with uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. Could you just talk a little bit about what? What is the connections that you have formed and what are the Irish interests, I guess? Yeah, I, I'll explain that. I spent five years heading up the division in in our department dealing with Northern Ireland, British-Irish relations, Irish-US relations, because we always kept that connected. You know, we, we, we always needed to have US support for the process. So it was very much Belfast, London, Washington. And then added on to that was Latin American relations and Canadian relations. For us, Canada was has been a sleeping giant of a relationship. You know, so much focus is on Washington, Boston, Chicago, uh, and yet there's a, a large and growing Irish community in Canada. Um, for example, you know, during the most recent economic crisis, 2010, because it was hard to get visas to come to Boston and Chicago, many young people went to Vancouver, Toronto, and have done really, really well there. 
So this it, it's a really growing, expanding relationship. The, the one that's really of interest to us. We've opened a new, a new. We always had an embassy in Ottawa. We've opened a new consulate in Vancouver, and now most recently last year in Toronto. So we're really expanding the footprint and getting to know each other. I think that's a really, really important point. There's a lovely. I, I was in Toronto twice in the last year, and there's a really moving famine memorial there. Um, and I, I explained this context. In 1847, Toronto was a city of 30,000 people. In that year alone, 50,000 Irish landed in Toronto. 50,000, many with typhus, starving in absolute desperation. And you can think what that meant to the people of Toronto. And yet they responded hugely, warmly, welcoming. And so many, so many doctors and nurses and clergymen in Toronto died of typhus looking after the Irish. So what the Irish community now are they're doing now is, that in addition to the famine memorial, they're doing a second memorial honouring the welcome and honouring the people of Toronto. So in many ways, um, maybe because we, 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 you know, we, we left the empire, we left the Commonwealth, relay, you know, Canada went one way, we went another way. We didn't really know each other that well, certainly vis-a-vis Ireland, US, but we're building on that and we're getting to know each other and we're deepening the relationship. And as I say, many, many Irish people have found a welcome and a home and an opportunity there, either short term or long term. So that's Canada. We're, we're, we're really deepening the relationship there. Latin America is, is, is a whole different kettle of fish. It's even more challenging linguistically. There are areas where there's a strong Irish community, particularly Argentina. Uh, and uh, a, a small but deep uh, community in Mexico. I was in Mexico last week uh, working with the, the Mexican Foreign Ministry and our embassy there, and there are deep connections, but they're 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 lean compared to Boston, Chicago, San Francisco, etc. So we've opened six new missions there in the last few years, really, really trying to connect and engage with, with Latin America in so many ways. And we work hugely closely with Latin American countries here. We were with Mexico on the Security Council for two years. We work very closely with Ecuador, Brazil here. So again, if Canada has been a sleeping giant that we're, that we're waking up, we're waking up that relationship, Latin, Latin America even more so, but it's a work in progress. So you kind of talk really poignantly about the Family Memorial in Toronto, which kind of takes me towards issues of migration and tensions that are certainly being felt worldwide. And I also noticed that coupled into your experience was a stint in Sarajevo. And then immediately in 1997, then you started working in the human rights area. And that had to be really a pivotal year because that was the same year that uh, Mary Robinson was appointed uh, head of the United Nations, uh, uh, High Commissioner of the United Nations on Human Rights. So that must have been a pretty heady time uh, to make your start in that space. It was. It was. Um, it was a very important year for for Ireland. It was. It was. We had our white paper in 1996. We established our first human rights unit in the Department of Foreign Affairs. We, we started looking at a number of UN human rights instruments that we needed to reflect on signing up to, like the, the, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Uh, we had Mary Robinson, you say, as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. And it was also probably the first year of real immigration into Ireland as opposed to emigration. Uh, I remember um, a, a distant relation of mine uh, 
the Green family in, in Gorey County, actually they run big fruit farms. And he was on radio once a similar podcast like this and reflecting on 1997 as the year when he couldn't get young Wexford lads and girls out of bed because uh, they had money in their back pocket uh, to work in the morning and picking fruit. And it was the first year he started having really significant um, migrant labour, immigrant labour. And I think um, it was the first few years where I think, you know, you know, Ireland as a society, but also Ireland as a system, you know, and the Department of Justice, Department of Foreign Affairs had to deal with those issues of, of inward migration, uh, direct provision centres, all the rest of it. And obviously these are issues now that have have have, have developed. So, um, you know, in some ways it was the first, the, the turning point in terms of how we respond to these issues. It was the first time in our entire history that we were a country of immigration as opposed to emigration. So I dealt with some of those issues back in 1997, 1999. Yep. Well, Fergal, let's bring you a little bit more up to the, the current uh, situation for you. We'd, we'd love to hear more about your uh, your experience in the UN. Uh, you joined the your role in the UN when uh, Ireland had six months left on its uh, Security Council engagement, I believe. And I read something you wrote about uh, how you had your view of this Security Council from afar. Uh, and then now that you're there, your up close and personal view, how different are they, the before and after view of the Security Council? Yes, I, 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 I took over from my predecessor, Geraldine Bernason, currently ambassador in Washington. She led the campaign here to get elected and then uh, led the team until, you know, from January 2021 through to August 2022 and I came on I suppose a, a, a second half sub uh, came on and led the team from August to Christmas and I suppose my 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 sense of the Security Council was from outside I, I hadn't worked in the Security Council I'd worked very little in the UN to be honest um, and I wondered how effective it would be in real terms and I wondered how effective it could be particularly since the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the kind of gridlock and what I found was an extraordinary effort by by the vast majority of member states and diplomats at the Security Council to try and make it work, despite the circumstances, despite the difficulties and challenges, and to try and get meaningful, real, impactful decisions. So I'll give you a few examples that we dealt with. One was the, the renewal of peacekeeping mandates. And one of those was for the peacekeeping operation in Bosnia, uh, which is obviously now a very quiet situation compared to other parts of the world. But we have uh, an EU-led, UN-mandated peacekeeping force there. We were leading on that in, in to get that mandate renewed. It wasn't easy because there was you know, some possible Russian opposition to it. But I just saw how we and our teams just worked with all the other teams, including the Russian, Chinese, all the other member states on the council to work through disagreements, through find the compromises that would allow that mission to continue. That was very impactful. Perhaps even more impactful was our work on on a cross-border humanitarian access point between Turkey and Syria, uh, where, you know, aid for 400 sorry, 4 million people, 4 million people in northeast Syria rely on this this corridor through Turkey to get aid through. A lot of opposition, the the, the Syrian regime in Damascus oppose it. Uh, Russia wasn't entirely enthusiastic either. There was various geopolitical games in play, uh, but we worked very closely with the Norwegians, again, to to get access to that. We secured agreement uh, a number of times, and we worked really hard to keep that channel open because so many people relied on it. Uh, and 
you know, in in retrospect, it was even more important given that's where the, the huge earthquake hit earlier this year. That that was an absolute lifeline. And for us, that was the Security Council being really impactful, making decisions that made a difference. But there's many other areas where where it is <clears throat> it's stymied by almost Cold War style politics, geopolitics. We had some 50 meetings on on the Russian invasion of Ukraine last year, since since last February, but no resolution, no mandate, no action, not even agreed press points or, or, or statements, totally gridlocked by the Russian veto power on the Security Council, which really does call into question in, in many ways sometimes the credibility of the Security Council when that happens. And there were other such instances where, where the veto was used we see in relation to the Middle East, and it's an issue we feel very, very strongly about, the need for a, a political process in the Middle East and a political track towards a two-state solution. Um, but again, not much progress there over the last few years, and in fact, a, a worsening situation. Uh, we also felt that the, the Security Council could have moved more quickly in relation to the war in Ethiopia, which many people don't even know about, but 500,000 people died there over two years. Eventually, there was a peace process and peace agreement last November, December, but we felt the Security Council should have been pushing for that much, much earlier. Uh, so, you know, I saw the good and the positive and the impactful where it really worked, but I also saw where, where it, it, it really let people down, where, where need was greatest and need was, was really extreme in peace and security terms. So I think a mixed scorecard from our, our two years and our two years experience there. It strikes me that to some degree you're a bit hamstrung by the fact that uh, the Security Council, as I understand it, has five permanent representatives. That's right. Those five have a veto. Um, there are then an additional 10 members that are non-permanent, of which Ireland was obviously one when you arrived. Is there a better way, or if if you were to wave the magic wand and say, okay, I, Fergal, might and get to decide uh how uh, a veto should work in this context what would you what would it look like uh, i'd say there shouldn't be a veto to be honest now i know that's that's very unlikely to 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 come about but i mean the security council is in a sense it's 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 almost a museum piece from 1945 the way the world looked then um, you know, the five permanent members were the victorious powers in 1945 uh, and i suppose i think in particular uh, Franklin Roosevelt really wanted to learn from the mistakes of the League of Nations. So, you know, the the absence of 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 a, a core group who could drive who could drive uh, the work of the, of the of the UN. You know, I, I think he wanted to rectify some of those mistakes. Uh, but to get agreement, particularly of the US Congress, and to get the agreement of the USSR, a veto power was deemed essential. Um, so that's what it is, uh, and and also geographically, you know. Now we look at we look at Africa. There's no permanent members from all of Africa. There's no permanent member from the Arab world. There's no permanent member from Latin America. Uh, huge, so huge swathes of the world don't have that permanent representation on the council. So you know the two big issues are the veto power and you know balanced geographic representation. I think y- you might see some progress on the geographic front, uh, but it's you know it's I just don't see any scenario where where. The, the permanent five would see the veto. Now I have to caveat that France and the UK have voluntarily not used the veto since 1989, a kind of self-denying ordinance. China doesn't really like to wield it. I have to say, you know, they they 
you know, um, the US certainly currently doesn't like to wield it, but but likes, I suppose, to have it, uh, particularly in relation, I would imagine, to Middle East issues where it likes to have the option of it. Russia has used it quite extensively, um, not just on Ukraine. I mean, we, we, we negotiated with Niger a resolution on the impact of climate change, climate emergency on security, which we could see happening. We can see it happening in, in the Horn of Africa. We can see it happening elsewhere. Vita, uh, Russia vetoed that, um, much to our disappointment. Uh, we still felt it was worth doing, but you know, the P5 have this power to veto resolutions, even in areas that aren't directly related to, to their own security. So it, it's a real problem. There's a lot of work going on. Um, there are some initiatives. The, the Liechtenstein brought in an initiative into the General Assembly, which is the, the big hall where all member states meet as equal, and whereby now if, if a country, if one of the permanent five uses a veto, they have to go into the General Assembly, they have to explain their actions, and they have to, and, and the member states can vote on that. So we've had a number of votes where all the member states of the UN voted on a resolution condemning Russia for its invasion of Ukraine. And I mean, on twice we've had over 140 votes condemning the Russian invasion of Ukraine and condemning the use of the veto in the Security Council on that issue. So there are ways of, of holding holding the veto used to account, but it's certainly not perfect. And you know, while there's a lot of talk and a lot of discussion and meetings about Security Council reform, I think Martin will understand this. It's a bit like the the, the perennial debate in Ireland about draining the Shannon. A lot of debate, <laughs> but it you know, some it's just hard to see it really changing in current circumstances. Yeah, I'm not going to go probing into the uh, re-wetting, <laughs> re-wetting <laughs> agricultural land in Ireland, which is, actually no, is don't. a major topic at the moment. Um, but, you know, it strikes me, you and I, interestingly, we grew up in the same side of the city. We grew up right around the same time. I'm a little bit older. Um, as a young person growing up in Ireland, the UN was a venerated institution. And when I arrived in the United States into New York City 40 years ago, I was struck by how the home of the UN, let's say, was not treated uh, as highly thought of by uh, American citizens. You know, you've got all this kind of crazy stuff floating around that it's an attempt to impose a world government and undermine American sovereignty, etc. To some degree, it feels to me. Uh, from an American perspective, that America may be, may be not playing as a constructive a role as it can because of the, this kind of underbelly conversation. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that notion. Well, yeah, I, I think, look, I'm, I'm not going to wade too deeply into U.S. politics. Um, <laughs> uh, I really won't. But I, I think, you know, I mentioned the League of Nations. It was voted down by the U.S. Senate. Uh, FDR learned an awful lot from the mistakes of Woodrow Wilson. You know, he ensured Republicans were on the negotiating team in San Francisco. He put in the P5, the Security Council, that kind of leadership role for 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 the the major powers. Really learned a lot from that. And uh, but there is this this love hate relationship, you know. And and certainly, I think it's fair to say that the UN does not have universal approval or support from the people of of America or or indeed elsewhere. And it has made mistakes as an organization. It is flawed. Uh, we remember, you know, we remember moments when the UN was let down um, or let let people down. I was in, you know, Bosnia. Uh, I arrived there only six months after Srebrenica. I remember the feeling of being let, you know, the, the, that people felt so let down by UN peacekeepers. 
you know that's happened elsewhere. Um, so it, the the record is mixed, and and yet I think of a world without the UN. I think of a world without UNICEF, without the UN Development Program, without UNRWA providing long term aid to the Palestinian refugees in the Middle East. I think of a world where where major powers would not be held to account, um, and it would be a far bleaker prospect. So it's flawed, uh, but it, it is essential, and certainly Ireland sees it as part of our 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 security. Arrangements, you know, a world that's based on rules and engagement and negotiation and compromise and agreement is far better than a world based on might is right and big powers win all the time. We know what that world looks like. We we, we experienced it in our history. We saw it twice bring 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 Europe to absolute rack and ruin, you know, in the last century. So it's flawed. It's imperfect. It is the sum of 193 countries with all our flaws and imperfections. But yet, I believe, and Ireland certainly believes, it's essential. Um, and I must say, um, we worked very closely with the with the current administration uh, on on the UN Security Council, Ambassador Lin, Linda Thomas Greenfield and our team, and worked extraordinarily well on many many issues, including negotiating um, a resolution on a humanitarian carve out for UN sanctions regimes, which basically makes it easier for the Red Cross or Concern to provide aid in in areas where there are UN sanctions. We work really really well, um, so I, I think. You know, it, it may well vary from administration to administration, uh, but there's, there's strong support for for the multilateral world order, not not world government, just a, a, a world based on rules and a charter and agreement and and the agreement that you don't invade neighbours, you don't use your muscle just because you're a bigger power, uh, and you work for compromise. And I think that's really important. There's a wonderful um, exhibition in the UN about disarmament. You know, just showing how much is spent on arms day in, day out. There's a clock, I think it's about five, five billion every day. The clock keeps on going up and up. Uh, and it shows, you know, minds and arms and just the ingenuity of mankind to impose, you know, to inflict horror on, on fellow human beings. But there's a quote there from Doug Hammarskjöld, the second Secretary General. And basically, I'm paraphrasing it, but he said, you know, the UN wasn't created to, to bring about heaven on earth. It was to prevent hell on earth. And mm-hmm. to save us from hell, and we know what that hell looked like. We saw it with the Holocaust, we saw it with the Second World War, we see it in conflicts around the world. So it's imperfect, and it can't bring about perfection, and it can't bring about heaven, but it can try its best to prevent hell or to mitigate the worst aspects of of hell on earth. And I think that that that's noble, despite all the the flaws. I'm curious, given how much Brexit has been playing out mm-hmm. in the Irish news media right now how your experiences in Northern Ireland, and I understand you were involved in the implementation of the Good Friday Accords, what your take is now that you're sitting afar in New York City uh, on what's playing out in front of us. Yeah, sometimes a little bit of distance is is no harm. Mm -hmm. Look, I I think a lot of my career on Northern Ireland was was post-Good Friday Agreement, so I wasn't in the room for the Good Friday Agreement signing, but that really difficult phase of implementation that Senator George Mitchell spoke about, wave after wave after wave of negotiation to implement policing reform, uh, decommissioning of weapons, demilitarization, uh, all of that. Uh, and it has been you know, an extraordinarily successful peace process in global terms. I mean, we work very closely and share lessons with the Colombian peace process. And that's another example of where it's worked really well. Uh, and the world needs those kind of examples because many peace processes do collapse after a few years, do collapse in themselves. And what's really important, what's driven 
the 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 Northern Ireland peace process to relative success. I'm not I'm not saying it's it's a done deal, and clearly there are political instability problems and there are issues around reconciliation and dealing with the past. But what drove that process was the the, the two sovereign governments, the Irish government, the British government, working in partnership with US support, with European Union support. So it was a real, it was the sweet spot of, of that cooperation. Uh, and I worked very closely with British officials and ministers over many, many years. Um, what caused some turbulence in the force uh, of that relationship has been Brexit and how it was played out. We in, in, in Dublin and the Irish government and ministers and the Taoiseach uh, of the day and the Kenny knew that a, a Brexit vote would cause difficulty and, and really realised that actually not many in in Britain working on the Brexit issue, campaigning for Brexit, had really taken into account Northern Ireland, the Good Friday Agreement, the impact of, of a shared membership of the U- European Union in allowing that border to disappear, to allow people to live, work, move freely across the border. Why is that important? Because it was the kind of quid pro quo for... Um, the principle of consent, Northern Ireland staying apart to the UK as long as a majority in Northern Ireland wanted, but at the same time allowing people, uh, particularly those of a national persuasion, to feel part of the island of Ireland in terms of north-south cooperation, but just moving freely, working, operating, Derry, Donegal, Monaghan, etc. Uh, and the European Union was so much was so important. It was almost unseen. People didn't realise how much actually the common European rulebook allowed all that to happen. Uh, and we felt that actually just that sense wasn't being understood in London after the vote, uh, which, you know, was a sovereign decision by, 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 by the British people. Uh, you know, the I think Prime Minister May spoke about no no customs union membership, no single market membership, no freedom of movement, no ECJ membership for the UK, and that that painted that made a very hard Brexit. Um, I'm not sure everybody in, in the UK knew they were voting for a hard Brexit, but that's the way it was. But a hard Brexit meant the the the, the, the reinstatement of a hard border in the Isle of Ireland, uh, which for us was just really against the Good Friday Agreement and really undermined the, the Good Friday Agreement. So we worked, uh, you know, with successive British governments, successive British ministers explaining our cases at, at official level, my level, political level, prime ministerial level. Uh, we we thought we'd reached a breakthrough uh, with Theresa May. Then there was another breakthrough with, with Prime Minister Johnson. Uh, all came under certain pressure in the British political system and from from some political forces in Northern Ireland. Uh, I think we've we've now had the, the latest iteration of a compromise, which is the West the Windsor framework, which just is a big, a major effort on the part of the UK government, the current UK government, and the European Union to find compromise around you know checks all the rest of it that required a single market to work on the island of Ireland, but protects UK interests minimizes checks between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. So we're back to that issue we spoke about at the very part, part for the, at the early stage of this, this conversation, compromise, negotiation, finding a way through, finding a way that means all sides to the conversation can walk away with something. Uh, and I think um, both the, the the EU Commission President uh, van der Leyen and Prime Minister Sunak deserve great credit for finding that landing zone. Got a huge, a huge vote of support in Westminster, uh, and we we hope that uh, we hope it can ultimately lead lead to restoration of the power sharing institutions in Belfast. 
um, that's a work in progress. But again, it's finding that that compromise. So I think relations are are back on a on a pretty good even keel between London and Dublin. That's really important for our economic and political relationship, but also in relation to our our joint stewardship and guardianship of the Northern Ireland Peace Process and the Good Friday Agreement. So turbulence in the force, some rocky moments, but I think we're we're back we're back heading I think we're back in a good place and that that's really, really important. Fergal, it strikes me that posting to the United Nations is different from most ambassadorial appointments. Can you talk to us about that experience and how it differs? And also, can you talk to us about living in New York City, how that has differed or aligned with your expectations? It's been really good. I remember speaking, I, I, I met with a former Irish ambassador, Richie Ryan, who led, our, who led our Security Council membership 20 years ago. And he said, Fergal, every day is a learning day in the UN. And it absolutely is. You know, you have 193 countries plus the Holy See, plus Palestine, plus uh, the UN Secretariat, plus uh, various NGOs and civil society actors. And you're meeting new people every day and just gaining a perspective on what the world looks like from Suriname or, or, or Kenya, uh, you know, their historical background, their view of the current state of affairs vis-a-vis compared to ours. And it's just really interesting. And it's, it's a, you know, it's a thousand conversations every week. And I just really find it fascinating. New York is a whole different kettle of fish. Absolutely love New York. I mean, I've been on various postings, as you say, Rome, Brussels, Sarajevo. I've never settled into a, a city or a country as easily or smoothly as I have here. Uh, I know some people find New York tiring and busy, and but I, I absolutely love it, as, as does the family. We we try to get to as many activities as we can to weekend shows, etc., a bit of sightseeing. During the weekend, my children play Gaelic games, hurling and football. We play up in, up in Yonkers with St. Bridget's GA Club uh, and Liberty Gales here in the city. So we're getting... New York, Manhattan in the city, and then we're getting the Bronx and Queens and Pearl River as well, the Irish American communities. And I love I love both in equal measure. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's been a really great welcome. I don't think it's a, an impediment to be Irish in New York. I think it's a, it's a help. Uh, I find New Yorkers really friendly. If you engage in conversation, they're just interested and in, and in, in, chatty and yeah, it's a really, for a city of 8 million people, it has a real warmth and intimacy that I was not expecting. As I said, we went to Toronto in in March, and Toronto has many high rise, you know, downtown area, but it's a big boulevard, big open wide streets, and it lacks the intimacy of New York streets, and it lacks the warmth. Now, Canadians will say it's March. What are you expecting? Of course, it's cold in in <laughs> Toronto, you know, and, and everybody's underground in the shopping malls. But New York has that warmth, summer winter that I just absolutely love, and that vitality. Um, I could probably do it without the honking of the horns after the New York minute. Uh, that's the only little little <laughs> uh, little grit, but that's just the way it is. But it's it's a great city and great people. And I, I'd worked on because I'd worked on US Irish relations. I'd been over here pretty regularly between New York, DC, and Boston. And um, uh, I love America. I love Americans for all its its challenges, as you mentioned, Martin. And I really like Irish America too. Uh, they're a very warm, welcoming community, and feel their Irishness, but also their Americanness. And kind of wear those, uh, both those identities proudly. And why not? Why not? Yeah. So, unfortunately, we're getting to that point in the podcast where we have to introduce her friend Seamus Plug, uh, which is a, a rather disreputable character, but always wants to know what you would like us to know about. So, 
Is there a particular plug you would like to give us? Yeah, well, I'm going to give two. I'm going to be cheeky, but I'll be, I'll be quick. Firstly, um, I'm currently working on the Sustainable Development Goals. What are they? They were a set of 17 goals agreed by the UN membership in 2015. Really, you know, coming back to that point about trying to create heaven and earth. So hugely ambitious, you know, eradicating poverty, particularly extreme poverty, zero hunger, quality education for all, gender equality, clean water, viable cities, just a really ambitious set of goals for the entire world and for everyone, men, women, north, south. Uh, and we, Ireland, my predecessor, David who helped negotiate those in 2015. They're meant to be achieved by 2030. We're badly off track because of COVID and invasions and all the rest of it, and maybe because they were just overly ambitious. But we're working currently with other members of the state to try and devise a program to re-energize, turbocharge, you know, just really get back on track to try and, and build a much better world in all those ways. So sustainable development goals uh, from now until 2030, really, really important. The second thing, about and it's more personal, it's about supporting uh, young girls and, and women to stay involved in sport. Uh, you know, whether that's Gaelic games, soccer, rugby, Ireland's going to the, the Women's you know World Cup in, a, I think, in a few weeks. We're involved in rugby and my own children play Gaelic games, hurling and football and working with St. Bridges, you know, hugely. It, it's, it's a challenging task to keep young girls, particularly 15, 16, say, involved in sport. Uh, and it's a challenge even in an organisation like the Gaelic Led Association or the FA or the IRFU to help, help girls and women get a fair crack of the whip to get access to facilities, to get, you know, to play on a level playing field with their with their male counterparts. And it's something I feel hugely strongly about, just the benefits of sport for, for young women, learn to win, learn to lose, learn to, you know, run around red-faced and not worry about body image, not worry about makeup, not worry about Snapchat and just, just be in the moment, hugely important. So the sustainable development goals, and just making sure there's a pathway for young girls and women to stay actively involved in sport, hugely important to both counts. Yeah, as an uncle to uh, nine nieces, there's no males in the next generation of my, <laughs> in my family. Um, and some of them are quite active in sport. I, I uh, certainly uh, certainly will be signing up for that, Good. as I am Good. for the sustainable uh the sustainability work that you're on, which is probably the most important thing going on. We tend to get yeah. self-important in our own political conflicts, but really, if we don't have a planet that, that functions as a healthy environment, we have nothing. It's totally agree, Martin. I mean, we see, and I, I talk to uh, diplomats from Pacific Islands, and they're under huge climate pressure. You know, their, their, their lands are simply disappearing, water's disappearing. Uh, we see it in, in the Horn of Africa, climate change. And uh, yeah, if we don't have a, a, we don't have a, a globe that, that, that's breathing and living and providing for all, not just for the few, but providing for all education, uh, food, sustainability. Yeah, it's hugely important. Yep. And so with that, Ambassador Fergal Mython, we'd really like to thank you, both John and I, and our listeners for telling us a little bit about your career, your experience, and we want to wish you the very best uh, for the rest of your term at the UN and wherever your next port of call be. So thank you. Thank you very much, Martin. Thank you, John. It's been a real pleasure and good luck with your work. It's, it's very important to keep us all connected. John, I really enjoyed that conversation with Fergal Mython. 
And one thing that struck me when we were talking was he disclosed the year he was born, which also happened to be the year when second-level education in Ireland, basically high school education if you're in America, became available for everybody across the country. Prior to that, it was only available as a private option. And so that was a huge sea change. And what you're seeing now is a generation that has come forward over the last 50 years that have benefited from that, not just second-level education, but also college education. And it's made Ireland one of the best educated workforces in the Western world. And, you know, what a charming guy Fergal is. Yeah, it was a real treat. You know, there's somebody with so many interesting global perspectives. He lived in Rome. He serves time in Brussels. He knows the ins and outs of Irish-British, Irish-Caribbean, Irish-Latin American, and Irish-Canadian relations. And now he's in the hot seat, or actually just got out of the hot seat, of the Security Council at the United Nations. And I think we heard from him sort of warts and all. The United Nations is still a valuable organization, and Ireland was privileged and honored to have such an important role in it. Really enjoyed talking to him, and I hope we can check back in with him later. If you would like to hear more of our conversations that have revolved around diplomacy, and I can remind you that we've had Ted Smith, Emer Rock, Dan Mulhall, and of course, Giovanni Buttigieg, the Maltese ambassador to Ireland. So quite a lot of diplomatic chat in our back channel. Yeah, and to find those episodes, just go to our website, irishstewpodcast.com, pull down the episode tab, and you'll be guided to those diplomatic episodes. Irish Stew is produced by John Lee, Martin Nutty, and Bill Schultz. Editing, mixing, and mastering by Bill Schultz. Music on Irish Stew was composed and performed by Rosa Nutty with Donald Bowens on drums, Cahal Reardon on bass and synthesizer. For more on Rosa Nutty's music, please visit rosanutty.com. Listener.